Well, good morning, church family, and uh, it's just so glad to see you and to be with you here at Windsor Road. <clears throat> so listen, true confession here. Have you ever sang a song and then you just have really doubted what you were singing at the time? That was me about 30 seconds ago. Um, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. And the reason why is because I came up here and I'm singing and then I realize I don't have my glasses. <laughs> okay, I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I'm still, a, I'm going to be a blind child of God if I don't get my glasses. So anyway, my beautiful wife, Sarah, I said, I, I, I need you to find, and then I wasn't quite sure where I put them. <laughs> so anyway. She found them. I don't, where were they anyway? Were they in my office? Okay, they were in my office. So how are you today? <laughs> well, we're in a series of messages uh, here at Windsor on identity. We're, we're answering the question, who am I? And we've been looking at different uh, dimensions of our identity. And really, we have been approaching this series with a question that we really need to consider before we ask the question, who am I? It's the question, who is most qualified to tell me who I am? Who is most qualified? And um, we have been considering this question under the key assumption that God is the most qualified person to tell us who we are. He made us. He created us. He knows us better than we know Ourselves. And so we've been talking about um, what does it look like to be a child of God? What does that look like? And then last week we considered what does it look like to be a, a servant of God? And this morning we're going to consider uh, I am a new creation. I'm a new creation. And so there are two passages of Scripture that I want to share this morning uh, First is from the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 51, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13, and then I'll be reading one verse from a New Testament reading, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and I'll just go from one straight to the other. Psalm 51 can be found on page 474 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please, uh, we have copies in the pouch in front of you, and we would be delighted if you could receive it as a gift from the church family and um, put your name in it and take it home uh, as, as our gift. Uh, Psalm 51, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13, and then I'll immediately go to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. We're going to talk about that a little later on. Hyssop is a, is a plant, all right? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is God's word. I don't think he woke up that morning and said, I think I'll just commit adultery and kill her husband and then marry her so that my approval ratings will soar because a nation just absolutely adores a king who is magnanimous toward a fallen war hero's wife. I don't think that's what he thought of when he got up that morning. I mean, it all started just so... At first, unremarkably. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 says that it was springtime, the time when kings were to go to war, And so David sent Joab to fight the uh, Ammonites, the enemy, but he stayed in Jerusalem. That's how it all started. So very unremarkably. But this very unremarkable decision was an unwise decision that led to another unwise decision and then another unwise decision, and another, and another, and that's, that's how it happens. David was uh, on the roof of his palace, overlooking the magnificent city of Jerusalem, 
And that's when he saw her. And she was beautiful. And she was unclothed. And she was married. But David's look became a lust. His glance became a gaze. And he said, I want her. Go get her. And it was like his staff, his servants were, you know, really almost dissuading him by what they said to him when he summoned her to the palace, uh, your majesty. They knew what was going to happen. Your majesty, I mean, uh, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, one of your chief advisors? Is she not the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your most trusted officers? But David wanted her. And Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 says, he took her, meaning he raped her. And then she became pregnant. And then the cover-up. So he summons her husband from the front line to return home so that he would spend time with her and cover up his sin. But Uriah the Hittite would not sleep with her. And why? Because he was still on duty. Here, the king, who was derelict in his duty, had an officer of honor who remained on duty. And David made yet another unwise decision then. He's going to take the life of this highly skilled, highly loyal commander. So he scribbles out a note to his chief general, a note that says, Put Uriah on the front line where the battle is most fierce and then withdraw our troops so that he is cut down. I mean, he signed that and then he gave it to Uriah, sealed it, gave it to Uriah. Uriah took his own death certificate with him to the front line and he was cut down and he died. And... David brought Bathsheba into his home. And sure enough, the people of Israel were just elated. Oh, we have such a king who is so magnanimous and gracious that he would look after the wife of a fallen war hero by bringing her into his family and marrying. Oh, she's pregnant now. Oh, this must be God's blessing. Oh, thank God that he's given us such a king as David. I mean, that's what was going on. And for a while, he was getting away with it. But then we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, perhaps one of the most understated verses in all of Scripture. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. 
And the Lord sent the prophet Nathan, who came to the court of his majesty, David. Your majesty, we have a problem in your kingdom. Yes, there is a wealthy rancher who has herds and flocks and cattle and sheep. Yes, and he lives next door to a peasant man who has one little ewe lamb. Yes, and this wealthy, over-the-top rancher, in order to show hospitality to a traveler going through town, raided this peasant's pen and took the ewe lamb and slaughtered it to feed it to this traveler passing through. And you could just see David's face get red and his blood begin to boil. And it just almost without even uh, thinking about it, he said, well, kill him. Kill, kill the rancher. Just kill him. That's it. Done. Kill him. Oh, and uh, give four times what this peasant lost. Reimburse him for that. Kill him four times what he lost. So it is written, so it shall be done. Nathan just, you know, you know what's coming next, don't you? You're the man. You're the man. Thus says the Lord. Did I not give you from the hand of Saul? All that belonged to him? Did I not deliver you from him? Did I not put you in this palace? Did I not give you the throne upon which you now sit? Are your wives not beautiful and lovely? Israel and Judah are yours to lead and shepherd. And if this would have been too little I would have given you more if you would have just asked. If, if all of this would have been too little, if you would just ask, I would have given you more. But you did not ask, you took. You took the life of Uriah the Hittite. You raided his marriage. You raped Bathsheba. You put Uriah the Hittite to the sword and now the sword will never depart from your house. Three of David's sons died violent deaths. What you did in secret, all of Israel will now see. It will, it will be in broad daylight. Nathan cut him with the word of God. And David was broken. He said to the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. And, and, and the prophet then became a pastor. Because do you remember what the very next thing Nathan said after David said, I have sinned against the Lord? Do you remember? Here it is. The Lord has put away your sin. The, the prophet before the confession becomes a pastor after the confession. The Lord has put away your sin. How does that happen? How does that happen? The Lord has put away your sin. 
Well, sometime after that happened, David reflected upon his sin and God's mercy. And as a result, we have this beautiful psalm, Psalm 51. This song to be sung in worship about how God fixes scandals. And this is a scandal. And Olivia Pope can't fix this. <laughs> it's way beyond her pay grade. God can fix this. The Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Well, how does God do that? How does God make us into a new creation in Christ? And the answer is found in these verses. God takes us through a process. There's a process to the ministry of mercy. And it goes something like this. It's in four stages. And, and I'll just front load these stages here. And then we'll talk through each of them. Here's the process. He visits. We confess. He restores. We serve. There it is. He visits, we confess, he restores, we serve. That's how God makes us into a new creation in Christ. So let's just begin with he visits. He visits. You see, um, the reason why David receives the mercy of God is because God initiates mercy with David. Through a visitation. You say, where is that? that? That's in a section of Psalm 51, which was actually in the original, which we did not read. It's before you get to verse 1. Do you see that? To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. There it is, when Nathan the prophet went to him. See, God's mercy, here's what's so beautiful about God's mercy. God's mercy will confront you before God's mercy comforts you. And that's what's happening here. Uh, mercy is not just a reaction to something David did. Actually, mercy is God taking initiative. Mercy shows up on the porch of your house and, and bangs on the door asking to be let in. That's the initiating mercy of God. You see, David, just as David, didn't get up that one morning and think to himself, well, I think I'll commit adultery and murder the husband and then cover it all up. Just as that much is true, it's also true that after the scandal had occurred, David didn't wake up with, oh my goodness, what have I done? I am the king. I've got to go to the tabernacle and offer a sacrifice and seek forgiveness. That did not happen. David would have been content to keep the secret inside. David would have been content to have nobody else know what was going on inside of his heart and in his spirit. David would have been just as content to come to worship in his kingly robes, looking really good on the outside, but on the inside, wasting away. Do you know what I mean? 
And David would have been just as content. While on the outside looking oh so fine and regal and splendid, but on the inside having his soul rot away. Because that's what we read in another psalm about this scandal. Psalm chapter 32, verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. David would have been content with that. But the initiating mercy of God appeared through a man of God, a man of mercy, a man by the name of Nathan who showed up with God's mercy and took a wrecking ball to David's pain and his pride. And at that moment, when, I mean, he was cut to the heart, that was when mercy was happening. Because mercy will confront you before mercy ever comforts you. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have a Nathan in your life who, who loves you so much that they're going to show the ugly side? They're going to show you the ugly side. They're going to say, this, this thing displeases the Lord. And it's not about them being right. And it's not about them being judgmental. It's about them bringing the mercy of God to your porch and knocking on your door and you opening that door. If you have that kind of a person in your life, I'm telling you, you are wealthy. Here's why. Here's why you need a Nathan in your life. Because you cannot repent what you have not confessed. And you cannot confess what you have not grieved. And you cannot grieve what the eyes of your heart haven't seen. And so Nathan comes along to help you see what is so ugly in the sight of a holy God. And that very moment, when you see it for what it is, that's a moment of mercy. Because when David finally saw his heinous sin, he realized that nothing else could help him. His money couldn't help him. His family couldn't help him. Politics couldn't help him. There was only one who could help him, the Lord. The Lord. What I'm trying to say is something Proverbs 28 verse 13 says. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We obtain mercy because mercy took the initiative to knock on the door of our heart so that we could see. He visits. We confess. That's the second stage. We confess. What are we talking about when we're talking about confession? 
Well, confession, confession is about coming clean before God. Remember what David said to Nathan? I've sinned against the Lord. Uh, Brennan Manning has written a powerful book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And in that book, he says this. uh, In order to free the captive, you have to name the captivity. In order to name the captive, in order to free the captive, you have to name the captivity. And that's what David's doing when he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's what we see here in Psalm 51. The very first verse, Psalm 51.1, the very first word of the very first verse is the word mercy. Mercy me, O God. Mercy me. Have mercy on me, O God. And then we move into this uh, series of parallel phrases. So one of the features of Hebrew poetry, one of the features of English poetry is rhyming. One of the features of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. That is saying the same thing, restating it in different words. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Do you see that? Blot out transgressions, wash me iniquity, cleanse me of my sin. And it's there for emphasis. David is saying, I am guilty. I have sinned before the Lord. No excuses, no defensiveness, no alibis, uh, no sense of self-justification. David pleads guilty. David calls it what it is. I know my transgressions. Here's another parallelism. And my sin is ever before me. David uses the S word. Americans don't like the S word. Sin. We like the M word. Mistake. Americans aren't sinners. We're mistakers. How many times have we heard prominent leaders having extramarital affairs calling it, oh, it was a mistake. And not I made the mistake. Mistakes were made. Really? A mistake is something that you make while you're trying to balance a checkbook. A mistake is when you forget to add the raisins to the oatmeal raisin cookie batch. That's a huge mistake, by the way. (laughs) A mistake is when you inadvertently hit the delete button. A mistake is an accident. So unless... Both David and Bathsheba were blindfolded and gagged. I don't think it's possible to have an accidental affair. If you do something you know is going to hurt someone, and you do it anyway, is that still a mistake? The person who gets hurt doesn't think so. And then David says this, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Now, he's not minimizing what he did to Bathsheba or to Uriah or to the nation as a whole. He's not minimizing that, but he is telling us something that we need to know about the nature of sin, and that is this, that sin is always primarily vertical before it is horizontal. Sin is always, God is always the primary party affected by our sin because sin is treason against God's glory. Sin is a revolt against God's leadership. Sin is a a scheming for God's throne. And, And that makes 
sin a heart issue before it ever becomes a behavior issue. That's why David prays what he prays in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. David realizes that his sin problem is at root a heart problem. My problem is that I have an unclean heart. Why do I get impatient? Because I have an unclean heart. Why do I say things I regret? Because I have an unclean heart. Why am I angry at the people I say I love? Why do I do what I don't want to do? And why do I not do what I should do? Why am I discontent? Why do I struggle with lust? Why do I spend money to numb the hurt? Why do I doubt the goodness of God? Because I have an unclean heart. Create in me a clean heart. David's confession has to be ours. God, my problem at core is an unclean heart, and I need the miracle of creation. Create in me. Create. It's the same word that shows up in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. David is asking God to do in his life and give him what has never existed before. Create in me a clean, and only you can do that, God. Only you can do that. Give me a clean heart. He's naming it. You cannot free the captive until you name the captivity. And the captive is an unclean heart. David confesses that before the Lord, and then, and this is so important, and this is where it gets uncomfortable, confession is about coming clean before another person, another human. <laughs> See, for confession to be effective, what activates the power of confession is the presence of an understanding individual, a trusted person. And so we saw that as David confesses to Nathan the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. And then, you know, David confesses this. How would you like to have your most embarrassing scandal put into lyric form and sung at church? But you see, he's the king. And where much has been given, much is required. And he is held accountable. And yet this confession was a part of his healing. Because confession unlocks the captivity of sin. But it's just not something that we can just... Sit in here and during communion, have a quiet prayer with God. It's just between me and God. Nobody else needs to know. Well, you know what? You need to do that and you need to find an understanding individual, a trusted person. And um, if I could just add, for those of you who happen to be married, it needs to be someone other than your spouse. Okay? Well, I'm not saying keep it from your spouse. But you see, our marriage makes us one flesh, one person. And so we need to, uh, we need to go outside. 
to a mature brother or sister in Christ and do what James chapter 5, verse 16 tells us. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And notice, James doesn't say that you have to make your confession before an ordained clergy person or seminarian or theologian. No, no, this is a brother or sister in Christ who, who can pastor you when you come and make yourself vulnerable through confession. And this needs to happen to one another. One, that would mean in our congregation, brothers and sisters in Christ, a brothers confessing to brothers, sisters confessing to sisters, one another confessing and praying for one another. James promises that healing will take place. And then he says in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Those of you who are a part of our Celebrate Recovery community know this as the fifth step. Here it is. We admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. And the fifth step teaches this wonderful lesson that if you really want to bring God in on a particular situation, bring someone else in on it first. And people who have followed through on James's word of wisdom in James 5.16 and who have confessed before an understanding individual have talked about how they have often felt the presence of God in that experience, that God has heard them in a fresh way. That's the word of God. And, and I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about confession when he says this, you can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. And then he says this, you can dare to be a sinner. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that, he says. Church, I could not be a Christian without this. And I couldn't be your pastor without this. He visits. We confess. And then he restores. Let's talk about hyssop for just a moment. That's verse 7, right? Purge me with hyssop. What's that? Well, it's a plant. And it was used, there's two references, at least in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, about this plant called hyssop. And the first involves the very first Passover meal that occurred in Israel's history the night before the exodus of Egypt took place. God had told his people, I want you to take the blood of a lamb and Paint it over the doorposts of your home, and the angel of death will pass over the blood-stained home, and you will be saved due to the life of a lamb. And hyssop was the branch that was to be used to paint the blood, you see? 
That's what Exodus 12, 22 says. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And then we see it elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible in Numbers chapter 19, verse 18, when hyssop is used uh, to be dipped in water to then that water is sprinkled in a ceremonial way into the dwelling of a Hebrew family where there has been death or disease as a sort of purification. Numbers 19, verse 18. Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there and on whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead, or the grave. So you see, hyssop is used in this process of purifying. And David's point is this. Sin has left such a stain on my life that only God can clean it. Purge me with hyssop. Which means that there's no such thing as a self-rescued sinner. No such thing as a self-rescued sinner. You you cannot obey your way out of sin. You cannot obey your way out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You can't. You need rescue. You need someone to come in and rescue you and take you out of the old kingdom and put you in the new kingdom. And God's mercy is the means of rescue. And that is what makes Christianity both unique and preeminent. Because Christianity says that God loves us not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who He is and what He has done in Christ. Christianity says that God restores us in our failures and in our sins and in the inescapable defects of character that we have. Christianity says that God does not weigh our merits. Rather, He purges our offenses. He doesn't restore us because we do good. He restores us. It's our sinfulness that drives us to him. He doesn't restore us because of our righteousness. We have no righteousness to bring before God. And so what else does he have to work with? Our unrighteousness. And so he uses our unrighteousness to bring us to him. And how? By sending his son, the Lamb of God, the promised Messiah, to take away, to purge the sin of the world. And when we see Christ the crucified, we are confronted with the truth that his death was the death that I should have died. His death was the consequence of my sin. If you know the story of David and Bathsheba, you know that the child... That child died. And I've been reading commentaries all week trying to figure that out, and I have come to the conclusion, well, that's not fair. That is not fair. And hear me. Sometimes innocent people suffer for the guilt of others. The death of this child foretold the death of another child. 
the death of another descendant of David, Jesus, the Son of God. And to truly see the cross is to be deeply and forcefully and gut-wrenchingly sorry for the shaking of my fist against the sovereign, holy God who does not owe me salvation. The cross is the justice of love. The cross changes us. The cross transforms enemies into friends. He visits. We confess. He restores. We serve. That's the fourth stage. Oh, what a redemptive stage that is. And that's what we read in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. This is where we get to the end game of new creation. See, the point of there being a new creation is not so that the new creation just kind of walk about showing everybody how forgiven they are. <laughs> There's a purpose to this. There's a purpose to being reconciled to God. It is then to be put into the service of the reconciler, to be an instrument in the reconciler's hands. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. So David is saying that his story of rescue is something that God wants to use to help others. And thousands of years later, we are still learning from this beautiful piece of curriculum, this lyrical curriculum here. I will teach transgressors your way. And as I teach others by being vulnerable and willing to share my story, then I'm actually being used as a tool of transforming grace. You see, verse 13 isn't about the formal classroom lesson on grace. Oh, there's that. But still more, it's about sharing with others my experience of grace. People learn not because I've opened the dictionary of grace, but because I've shown them the video of grace at work in and through my life. And so this is both this is both an encouragement because God still uses me. He wants to use you. And it's a challenge too because this makes me want to ask questions like how am I doing at stewarding the story of grace in and through my life? Have I thought about how to tell my story in a way that spotlights God and his mercy? Have you looked around to see who could benefit from your story of grace and mercy? Where can you let your gratitude shine? Where can you speak vulnerably about how much you were and continue to be a person in need of rescue? You see, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. How did that happen? It happened because mercy visited. It happened because we confess. It happened because God restores and it happens because we serve. That's how.
And it still happens. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You might call that a spiritual heart transplant. Tara Storch understands this this miracle as much as anybody can. Tara Storch. In 2010, a skiing accident took the life of Tara's 13-year-old daughter, Taylor, every parent's worst nightmare. Funeral, the burial, a flood of tears. Tara and her husband, uh, Todd, chose to donate their daughter's organs, uh, including her heart. And there were few who needed a new heart more than Patricia Winters. And Taylor's heart gave Patricia a new life. Tara had only one request. She and her husband, Todd, flew from Dallas to Phoenix and went and visited Patricia's home. And the two mothers embraced for a long time. And then the request. Patricia offered Tara and Todd a stethoscope. And they listened to the healthy rhythm of their daughter's heart. See, whose heart did they hear? Was it not the still beating heart of their daughter? It, it indwelled a different body, but the heart is the heart of their child. Church family, when God hears your heart, does he not hear the still beating heart of his son? Is that not what the Apostle Paul is telling us in Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ, and now it is I who no longer live, it is Christ who lives in me. No other religion makes this claim. No other religion. No other movement implies the living presence of its founder in his followers. Muhammad does not promise to indwell Muslims. Buddha doesn't promise to inhabit Buddhists, but Jesus does. And mercy is what happens when God, the great heart surgeon, cracks open your chest and removes your unclean, poisoned heart and replaces it with the perfect, clean heart of his own son. Rather than telling you to change, he creates the change by giving you a heart that you've never had but have always needed. You clean up so that he can accept you? No, he accepts you and then he begins cleaning you up. God's vision is not just getting you into heaven. He wants to get heaven into you. You can't forgive your enemy. You can't face tomorrow. You can't forgive your past. Christ can through you. He's on the move, aggressively budging you from merciless living to a mercy-shaped life. Forgiven people who spend the rest of their lives with the heart of Christ forgiving people.
Mercy is everything. Mercy is everything Jesus. Mercy lives because Jesus lives. Mercy works because Jesus works. Mercy matters because Jesus matters. He visits, we confess, he restores, we serve. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Amen.